Well, thanks again for being here at Grace. We we have these yard signs out. Anybody actually see some of these yard signs or see some yard signs around you and go, oh, I didn't know they went to Grace. Anybody like that? Yeah, I've heard a lot of those stories, so appreciate you doing that. And again, that's for Easter and beyond, and we're excited just to to try to get that buzz in our community, especially for Easter, but then after Easter is also key for us uh, to get people coming back. And what about last Sunday? Were you here last Sunday? What a great service we had. Uh, Just amazing. 30 people uh, came in in Believer's Baptism. We're just excited for them, and we love to see how God changes our lives, and it's great to just see a visual of that last Sunday. Fantastic. We're in a series called Public Enemy, and I want to dive right into that. Today we're looking at Luke chapter 20, and I invite you to turn there in, in, a, in your Bible or maybe a Bible off the chair rack in front of you or, or your device, turn that on, and uh, Luke 20. But before we get there, I want to set the context. This event happens in the, la- the, the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, and he has, he has come into Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry, to people shouting, Hosanna, Son of David. And a lot of excitement generated, a lot of messianic expectations going on, and all that's happening. When Jesus gets into Jerusalem, he visits the temple area, and in the temple, there are some grounds around the temple called the Court of the Gentiles within the temple walls, and he goes in there, and that's where there's a lot of buying and selling and trading going on. He upsets the tables, he drives out the money changers and the people selling animals, and and basically he does that clears the temple, causes a huge stir in Jerusalem. The religious leaders see that, that there's basically that all the people are with Jesus on this, so they do not intervene. Now, the next day, Jesus comes back. He's back in the temple. He's teaching the people, and he's also proclaiming the gospel. And, and it's there the religious leaders are decided to confront him and basically question, where does he get the authority? Who says that he can do what he's doing? And that kind of sets the scene of the passage that we're looking at uh, today. So it's Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Jesus is back on the religious leader's turf inside the temple. He has, has cleared it. By the way, that whole court of the Gentiles area, that was supposed to be a place where the Jewish people would be teaching about God to Gentile converts, but they weren't doing it that way. They just made it a place where the, the temple elite would gain a profit from the buying and selling and the exchanging of money that was happening there in or, when people came to make their sacrifices to God. So Luke 20, beginning of verse 1. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question. And you tell me, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? So they asked Jesus this this question about authority. And then Jesus doesn't answer, but, and this rabbis did this a lot. He flips the question back to them. But actually, if they answer this question correctly, it will answer their own question. But he pitches the question back. And by the way, this is a pretty easy question. It's multiple choice, and there's only two possibilities. 
I mean, don't you, you ever have that in school? I mean, that, that's what we're going for, right? I mean, even if we don't know, we got a 50% chance of getting it right. Nothing like the brackets that people are filling out for March Madness, right? You hear what I'm saying? Anybody have their bracket busted already? Yeah, yeah, that happens. Yeah, especially the whole UVA thing. Yeah, but don't, don't get me going. But anyway, yeah, so very easy question, but they don't want to answer. And they don't want to answer because they're realizing that answering will kind of get them in trouble with the people. And uh, they, they realize that, uh, and we'll just see how that plays out in the next verse. They reasoned among themselves saying, if we, and they're talking about their answer, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say, talking about John's baptism, John's ministry really is what they're saying. But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, so Jesus, they asked Jesus a question about authority. He pitches a question back to them. If they answered that correctly, it would really give them the answer. But they decline. They, they give the politically correct no comment, because if they say, well, yeah, it was from God, then he's saying, well, he, John, really instituted my, my ministry. But if they say, no, that wasn't from God, well, then all the people, they're saying, we're in danger, they'll stone us to death, because everybody is viewing John as a prophet. So that's how it all plays out, and, and so they come up with the no comment, but then Jesus goes ahead and answers their question in a parabolic way. So even though their question, if they would have answered it correctly, would have answered their question, if they would have answered Jesus's, but they don't, so Jesus doesn't answer their question, but then he tells a story that actually answers their question. All right, so here's how it goes, and this is the story that Jesus tells in the next verse. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And now, when Jesus asks this question, it forces the listeners to put themselves in the perspective of the owner, which is God, but we'll get to that. Verse 16, he will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And, and then back to the crowd. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. 
So there's this strong reaction from the crowd. No, because they understand that when you say give it to others, he's talking about specifically the, the apostles, but really it's the Gentile believers that will come to have faith in God because they're understanding you know, what's playing out in this parable. And here's what I want us to get from this story, that there are three key relationships in this story that's primarily about the religious leaders and their relationship to the owner. But there is also a broader application for us today in these three relationships. So that's what I want you to do. The first relationship is the relationship of the vine growers or the tenant farmers to the owner. That relationship is first. And so in the story, it's straightforward. What do the tenants owe the owner? Well, they owe him a share of the produce. It's his vineyard. He had the expense of planting it, buying the land, setting it all up. And so these other guys are just working for him, so they owe him a share. Again, they get paid, the vine growers, but a share of the profit or loss, but in this case, a share of the profit, needs to go to the owner, but they don't want to do that. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders... They under, and all the people, they understand that in this parable that, oh, this is talking about God and God's relationship to the fine growers or the tenant farmers, but they realize that when Jesus is talking to all the people, all the people are seeing, the bare minimum they're seeing, the religious leaders as the tenant farmers. And so they see themselves in this story, because the owner equals God, this will become more and more clear through the, through the story, the vine growers or the tenant farmers equals who they are, are these religious leaders, but you could say that also means all of Israel, just because of their reaction here, and, and even us as well. But that brings us to us. How does it apply to us today? And to us, uh, this, this broader point, I think is critical for us in Grace Community Church today to get this. And basically it's this, that we also have an owner. We have life. We, we have health, whatever health we have. We have energy. We have intelligence. We have creativity to lead our lives. But actually, we are not the owner even of our own life. Everything that we have, including our life, has been given to us by God, the true owner. And what do we owe the owner? Really, we owe him everything. We, we owe him allegiance. We owe him submission. We owe him everything, our entire lives. But it's the nature of the human heart for us to act like owners rather than tenant farmers, rather than that we've just been given all this by God, to, to be a steward of. And so that's kind of how this applies. For, for example, you have a mind, God has given you a mind, but God's saying you cannot use it any way you want. You shouldn't. God has given you a sex drive, but God says you cannot use that any way you want. God has given you resources and money and talents, and God says you cannot use that any way you want. I want you to use it the way I'm telling you, just like the owner would tell the vine growers, hey, I want you to tend this, this vineyard in a certain way. It's the same thing for us. 
Now, that is completely opposite of what we hear constantly in our culture. What God's saying is we all have an authority. We all have a boss. We all have an owner. But our culture wants to reject that. It's just embedded in the human heart. So if you, go to, you can go down aisles and aisles of books or in the bookstore and you'll see self-help books and, and you see the memes that circle around on the internet, you know, all that stuff. It's all kind of you do your thing. You do you. And we all get that, and it sounds responsible, and it sounds pretty good, and that part of it's good, but it's, yeah, you do you, remembering that God owns you, and you owe Him. And He is actually your authority, whether you recognize it or not. I mean, that's the addendum that should be on you to you. But anyway, that's, that's how we need to see that. And I think that deep down... Everybody has this suspicion, even non-believers, that deep down, everyone has the suspicion that maybe we are not the owner, that, there, that we have a creator, that we owe allegiance, we owe submission to somebody else, but we don't want to feel like we owe anybody, so we suppress that idea. Just this last week... Uh, Stephen Hawking died. Uh, you know, great scientist and, uh, you know, had a lot to say, self-described atheist. And spent his life trying to figure out the universe apart from a traditional belief in God, I think is the way he would say it. But, you know, figuring out the universe apart from God. But when it just comes, it doesn't matter how smart you are. If there is no God, then the universe is an accident. We are accidents. The fact that we can think is just an accident. And our life is ultimately meaningless. So Stephen Hawking's life was meaningless. And all of our lives are meaningless if there is no God. If there is no God, it does not matter how we live. It's meaningless. We have no purpose. We have no reason to live. It's all a cosmic accident. We're no more valuable than a rock or a plant if there is no God. If there is no God, we cannot know how to treat other people. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we treat people good or bad because there's no objective morality to say that treating people good is right and bad is wrong. We cannot say there's no way to determine if genocide is wrong if somebody else says genocide is right. No God, no objective morality, then no, no right and wrong then, and, we, and everything is meaningless. If we reject God, and we can do that, but make no mistake about it, life makes no sense without God. And I think we all have this ingrained sense, whether we're a believer or not, that we have to be more important than a rock. That we have to be more meaningful than a plant. We just have that innate inside of us that's part of the way that God's created us. But we don't want to acknowledge it. Since the beginning, humanity has sought to attempt to rid the universe of God. 
so that we can rule supreme. But it's wrong. And ironically, if you believe that, there is no God. If you believe that you're the owner, ironically, your existence then means nothing by your own definition. But we're not the owner. God is. So that's the first relationship. The relationship of the, the tenant farmers to the owner. The next relationship that I want us to see is, is the relationship between the vine growers or the tenant farmers and the messengers. Now, when Jesus told this parable, the people there, they would see this loud and clear because the people knew from the Old Testament that they that the people of Israel had this long, detailed history on how they rejected God's messengers, specifically the Old Testament prophets. And, and we, can, we can read about that in the Old Testament. For example, Jeremiah, who was beaten. You know, all this stuff is the people's tendency to reject messengers from God. And so they have this long history. Every, all of Jesus' audience, the leaders and the people, they all would have caught that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we don't have a great track record there. And so, remember, this, this story comes on the heels of the leaders rejecting the ministry of one of God's messengers, John the Baptist. We talked about that a little bit last time, and that comes into play again. John is dead now, beheaded by Herod, but then Jesus uses John to ask, well, what about John? Where's his authority from? And they don't want to answer. Why? Because they reject his authority but the people accept his authority. That's why they won't answer the question. And then the question is, what about us? Because we also tend to reject God's messengers. What I'm saying is, our tendency is to do the exact thing that the religious leaders did. It's just we're doing it in a different context and a different time. We tend to reject God's messengers that remind us that God is an authority over our lives. There's so many times and so many situations in our life, we don't want to hear that, right? We don't want to hear it. And whether the messenger is our parents or a friend or a co-worker that's trying to remind us, a messenger from God, really, trying to remind us, you're not in control. You're under the authority of God. We tend to rebel against that. Or sometimes we'll accept it for 90% of our lives, but we don't want to hear it for 10% of our life. That's the problem. That's all of our tendency. And it's not just people. For, for some of you, God has used this church, grace, as a messenger from God to remind you that you are in, under authority, God's authority, to remind you that your life is not your own. God also uses circumstances. I mean, things that, that come up in life. Anybody ever notice when you're living your life that circumstances happen that remind you that you're not in control? That ever happened to anybody? Yeah, that happens a lot. God, that, those circumstances serve as God's messenger to remind us we're not in control. What's really interesting is a lot of times when bad circumstances happen, people will say, well, that's an argument against God. And they'll, well, you know, this bad thing happened to me, so God must not exist, or why would he allow that? You can actually flip that argument totally around. Hey, 
If bad things that you can't control happening, well, that must mean that you're not the owner of your life. That must mean you're not in charge. But you're wondering, why did this happen? Even you're, by framing the question, you're admitting somebody's in charge, but it's not me. Right. Right. And these circumstances, even negative circumstances, remind us that we're not in control, but they also tell us, because we're asking somebody should be, that God is in control. Even difficult people in your life, even the people that just drive you nuts, can serve as God's messenger. They, they could be terrible people, but they could, just that situation can serve as God's messenger to remind you that you're not in control. But there's a God of the universe that is. And the question is, are you listening to God's messengers or are you rejecting them? Because you don't want to hear it because you don't want to feel like you have an authority in your life or in this one area of your life. And then third, I want to talk about the relationship between the vine growers or the tenant farmers and the son. Because we know what happens in the story in the story, unreasonably, it makes really no sense, but in, in the story that Jesus tells, the vine growers, they see the sun coming and go, here's the air. Let's get rid of this, this guy, and, and somehow we'll receive this land. You know, we'll, we'll be the heirs then. That we'll be in control then. That it'll all be ours. And so they kill the sun. And then ironically, what, what's happening that as the religious leaders hear all this, we're going to find out as we, as we go down a couple of more verses that what do they decide? They hear this. They realize the parable is spoken against them, and they decide on the spot, we got to kill this guy. Exactly like the vine growers in the story, what they do to the son. They're actually doing that at that time and place in history. They decide to kill Jesus, and a few days later, they actually accomplish that. But even in the death of Christ, God makes a way for sinners and people who are prone to rebellion to come to God. That's what we've been singing about all morning. God's pursuit of us. And making a way for us who start off as enemies against God. He loves us anyway and he makes a way for us to be reconciled to him. Why did he have to do that? Because the human heart is prone to rebel against God and his authority in our lives. Can we prove that? Yeah. What's the evidence? Well, the evidence is the one time in human history when God makes himself vulnerable and comes as a human being, how is he received? How do we receive God's messenger, the Son? Well, the one time he comes when he's vulnerable, we mock him, beat him, spit on him, and crucify him, torture him to death. That's the evidence that's the human heart. The natural mind is in hostility toward God. Now, many of us here realize, have, have come to a place where we've realized that about ourselves. 
And we've understood Christ's death for us to make a way through faith for us to have a relationship for God forever and be forgiven of that because we're all guilty. And when we get to that point, even more, if you're sitting here as a believer, even more should you feel like your life is owned by God. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Later, Paul says, you were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. We don't own us. God has given us life. And we should submit to his authority. And we should live life according to the instructions of the owner. That's what God wants us to do. And I know our heart rebels against that, and we don't always get that right, but our intention should be that that's what we want to do. We sin by doing what God says is wrong, but we also sin in attitude by by living as if God doesn't have a claim on our life. And some of us here today who would call ourselves believers, we live with some area in our life that we have staked out and said, God, you will, I will not be under your authority in this life. I will not live this, this area of my life your way. This is mine. And when we do that, we're just heading for destruction, bad news. And so what God do about this? Next verse. But Jesus looked at them and said, this after they said, may it never be. Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that's written? He starts quoting Old Testament. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. You see it all playing out. We see it plain as day in the lives of the religious leaders. But sometimes we don't see it so plain in our own life where we can have these areas where we're in rebellion against God and we act like he's not the owner, like like we're the owner. And here's what the Bible says about that. Scripture's saying if there's some area in your life, if you're a believer and there's some area in your life that you know you are not submitting this area of your life to God, to his authority, that you've said, no, Most of my life, yeah, but this area, no way. Here's what God says is going to happen. If you're a believer, then if you do that habitually, because what will happen is you'll get callous toward that sin, and you become more and more comfortable with it, and then it's just part of your life, and you no longer think much about it. You don't feel guilty about it anymore. And what God says is God will send, if you're a believer, discipline into your life. He will correct you through discipline like we would correct a small child. To bring us back to him. It's actually a positive thing. He's doing it with a purpose. He's not punishing us. He's correcting us to turn us back to him in that area. And if we call ourselves a believer, 
and we have these areas of our life that we habitually live outside of God's standards, outside of his guardrails. And that no longer bothers us anymore because we've been doing it so long, so much, that we just don't really care anymore. And God doesn't bring discipline in our lives. You know what that means? That we were never a child of his to begin with. That's what it says. Because he's telling us he will bring discipline into our lives if we habitually keep on doing the wrong thing. If we don't care anymore. If we're not repentant anymore. If we're not sensitive to that anymore. If, if we're not asking God for, if we're not just recognizing, God, I'm messing this up. I know. Help me to be strong. If we don't have that attitude, we're He's telling us he's going to bring discipline, unpleasant discipline into our life to serve a good purpose for us. And we don't experience that. Scripture would say that that we're not his. We all are called. Jesus invites all of us to, to come to him and say, God, my life is yours. You're my creator. I give it to you. I'm under your authority. Forgive me for my sin. And thank you for what Jesus did that that makes a way for me to be reconciled to you and forgiven of my sin because we all have it. We're all guilty. But if we will not do that, if we will not say, God, here's my life, then there is a day coming in the future when we will meet God as an unbeliever and he will say, you wanted your life to yourself, go and now be judged for your life. And that wouldn't be good news for any of us. Either Jesus pays for our sin or we do. That's the only two options. And that's what God's trying to tell us. And some people are just like, man, I just get so hung up on feeling like I have to give my life to God. How dangerous do you think it is to give your life to the one who died for you, the one who loved you so much? Right now I'm going to have our our song team come in. They're going to get ready to to close us in a song. And as, as they do that, here's what I want us to think about. And I know it's easy to be distracted. I mean, people walking on the platform, all this stuff's going on. But really, this is a time for us to kind of boil down and see what does God want for me today, for my life. And so the first thing, if you're sitting here and you're doubting your salvation, if, if you're not sure you've ever given your life to God and realize that you've experienced forgiveness. It's kind of like what we went through last time, those three boxes. You know, conviction, that means that you recognize that you've sinned against God, you're guilty. And then we talked about repentance, which means you change your mind about God, which leads you to turn to Him and follow Him with your life or or your desire to do that because none of us do that perfectly. And then forgiveness, that, that through faith, I mean, that's the whole point. We're crying out saying, God, I'm guilty. I am in need of forgiveness. And God is supplying that through faith in his son that he paid the penalty for your personal individual sins on the cross. He paid for your sins so that through faith you can be forgiven. And justice will not be violated. 
most important thing is have you come to that place? Because if you check those three boxes like we were talking about last week, conviction, I know I'm guilty, repentance, I, I want to live your way, and forgiveness, I, I'm only forgiven because I know Christ has paid for my sin. Those three boxes indicate that you're a believer and only you and God, you know, know that for sure. But if you're a believer and you know you've got these areas of your life that are just out of whack and, and it may not be sins that you physically do, it may be sins in your heart. I mean, God's the owner and you're, you are tied up and, and bound up with worry and bitterness and resentment. You know, if, if that's it, hey, that's you not seeing God's the owner. And if you're some area of your life where you're just in rebellion against him, hey, remove that callous, get, get beyond that, scrape that off and be tender toward God in that area. Come back to him. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation and and that means just e even during this time before you leave before you get back into the stream of life that while this you know song happens for three or so minutes that during that you could come kneel down here and and get your life back squared away with God if you're a believer and if you're not a believer I'd invite you to go back to room one We'll all be there, and, and some other pastors will be there. We can talk about where you are in your faith. Or, or if you're unsure, we'd love to talk to you about that. But the decision is yours. To give God your life, who's the true owner, every area. Or keep living as if you're the ultimate 